Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteem him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession 
for the transgressors. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Angeline, for bringing that to us. Uh, this is an amazing passage. Um, I really feel this is a passage you just actually want to read and then read and then read, and you don't really need a sermon about it because it's so powerful. But let me just pray for us um, as we come into God's Word. Father, this is the most remarkable passage, one of the most remarkable passages in the whole of Scripture. And Lord, I know that uh, words are not enough to describe what you have done for us. Words are not enough to describe and explain the, the depth of your love for us. I pray, Lord, this morning that you would just take even the simple, feeble words that I'll bring and, Lord, that you would speak. I pray that you would open our hearts, Lord. For those of us who find it difficult to really receive your love, I pray that you would break through that and you would just show us your love. For those of us who find it difficult to really um, hear your word, I pray that you'd open our ears to really hear it this morning. And I pray that you would get exalted and be honored and glorified. In Jesus' name. Amen. Great. It's uh, great to be speaking to you today. Um, if you don't know me, my name's Chris. I'm one of the uh, leaders here at Watermark. And we've been going through this series uh, in the book of Isaiah, looking at songs of the servant. And we're coming to uh, an ex- the climax today. You know, just this last week, my son Etienne um, was going into the forbidden zone of the kitchen where we have uh, told him he knows that he shouldn't go into there because it's dangerous and you see him kind of lingering by the sliding door and temptation just gets too much for him and then he jumps into the the he jumped into the the kitchen and so I had to take him into the corner give him some discipline and um, a few minutes later when he come back out I heard my helper saying to him, um, Etienne's a good boy, isn't he? Uh, you're a good boy, aren't you? And it's, it struck me at that moment that actually that's what we desperately want to hear over our lives. We desperately want to hear this verdict um, that Chris is a good boy, that I'm an acceptable boy, that I'm, I'm, I'm worthy, I'm worthy of love, I'm worthy of respect, I'm worthy to belong somewhere. And the problem is that uh, we want that verdict from everyone around us, parents, peers, bosses, all those other things, all those other people. But our lives often don't live up to that standard. We're like my son who knows what we should do, but we don't do it. Uh, but we still crave to be, have a verdict over us of you're a good boy or good girl. And we have this nagging suspicion deep inside of us that that's not who we are. Because it's like outside of my house uh, flat, there's um, rubbish bags that pile up uh, day after day after day. And just like those, the evidence in our lives that we're not as good as we hope we are, we're not as good as we want to be, piles up daily. And none of us can bear the weight of our sin, of our shame, of our guilt by ourselves. Which is why 
We come to alternative strategies. We pretend it doesn't exist. We cover up, we get defensive, we deny it, we become workaholics, or we develop savior complexes to try and help everybody else out and do good things so that we can kind of atone for our own sense of failings and helpfully move ourselves up the, the, the good rankings, in our, at least in our own esteem. It's why we are always finger pointing, why we always have to be right, why we always want to make our problem somebody else's fault because we desperately want somebody else to bear the weight of our shame and our sin. It's why when someone criticizes you or me for a mistake or exposes something which makes us feel humiliated, we automatically want to either defend ourselves or point out somebody else's previous rubbish in their life. So someone goes, why did you do that? And you go, well, you did that last week. And we've got to deflect attention because deep inside, we know we all haven't been the good boys and good girls that Santa uh, says he's going to come for. And if Santa's not, we're not enough for Santa, well, what about for God? And then on top of that, we have false guilt and shame that is put on us by other people who reject us, who ignore us, who ignore us, who neglect us. They say, why can't you be like your sister? Or can't you do anything right? And that rubbish pile on our backs just grows heavier and heavier and heavier. And we live under this weight. And we're just like Israel that Isaiah said in chapter 1 is laden down. They are burdened, bent double under the weight of their own sin, their shame, their guilt, adultery against God and others. And Israel are paying for it. They've paid for it. They're now the victim like an adulteress beaten black and blue by their triad lover, Assyria. Their wounds are affected. They're in darkness. They're in exile. They're shamed. They're rejected. They feel victimized, but they're not innocent. But they're still craving to be told they're good. Still craving that they would hear God's desire for blessing them and loving them and to be accepted. And Isaiah's great puzzle that he's going through is how can a God who loves his people so much, but whose people refuse to come to him, bridge this irreconcilable gap? How can rebellious people ever be freed from the weight of their sin and choices on their backs? Well, we've looked over the last few weeks at how Isaiah has, has like a TV drama, gradually unfolded God's plan of redemption. He said there's a servant who's going to come. He's going to be one who's going to bring justice, but he's going to be tender. He said he's going to be like a prophet who's going to call people, not just Israel, but all the nations back to God. And he said last week that he's going to be a faithful, obedient one who's going to suffer, but he's going to be vindicated. And from chapter 50 to chapter 53, there's two chapters where you see this promise of good news. And God says to the people, get up, wake up. There's liberation and freedom coming. He says, get up, put on your beautiful garments. He says, I'm redeeming you. He says, get up, there's good news that's coming. How beautiful are the feet of him who brings good news. The people who are in shame, he says, there is hope, there is good news. And Isaiah and we as the readers still have no idea how this is going to take place. And then we come to Isaiah chapter 53. And I'm going to look in three things. I'm going to look at, oh my God, oh his grace. Oh, what joy. And that's where we're going to go today. 
So let's just start off. If you've got the passage in front of you, please uh, look through. It's an incredible passage. And it starts off with great hope for this uh, redemption plan. It says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. And that act wisely, it's actually the word which means his mission is going to be accomplished. He's going to do what he said he's going to do. He shall be high and lifted up. You see, what is he doing here? He's taking from a passage that Isaiah previously said in chapter 6, where Isaiah had this vision of the awesomeness of God. And he comes into his temple and he says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And, and the hem of his robe, just the corner, just a little bit of his robe, was just kind of dangling in the temple, but it filled the whole temple. It filled it. And there were these crazy creatures who in the eyes and the sight of the glory of God, they shield their eyes and they just say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And Isaiah doesn't go, oh, that's nice. He falls down on his knees at the awesome God in majesty and says, in terror, I'm ruined. And Isaiah in chapter 53 is saying, this servant is going to be like the Holy One of God. And we're going, wow, this is going to be awesome. This is like shock and awe coming. And, and then in verse 15, he says, kings, the most powerful people, they're going to shut their mouths because of him. You know, there's this um, British term called gobsmacked. This is your gob, and it's like when you go, like that. It's like, OMG, this is what they're going. They're going, I would never have seen this coming. This is, this is incredible. You look through all the literature, look through all advisors that you've ever had, look through all the Netflix series, and you have never heard, never seen anything like this before. And you go, wow, I can't wait for this. This is better than Marvel and all the superheroes. But then you realize what they're gobsmacked by. Verse 14. This servant, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. He is hideously ugly. Not even human. Verse 2. Like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him. No beauty that we should desire him. He's despised. He's like one from whom men hide their faces. We don't esteem him at all. He's so weak. He's so fragile. He's so feeble. He's not the the manly superhero that we expect. And we know from what we see later on in scripture, that this person they're talking about is Jesus. But he's not the kind of charismatic, blue-eyed, Hollywood kind of Jesus that you see. If you brought this boyfriend home to your parents, they wouldn't even let him in the door. This is the street sleeper that you walk faster past so that you avoid contamination. It's the person you go, I'm not inviting them into my home. This isn't awesome, this is awful. You know, we live in a city which is all about appearances. You've just got to dress the right way. You've got to look the right way. You've got to have the right job, have the right um, car, have the right flat, go to the right schools. And if you don't have that, then everyone writes you off. Do you know Jesus would get written off in Hong Kong? 
Do you know, it's ironic that we've made Christmas all about expensive presents and beautiful decorations, when the Christmas story is actually all a story of rejection and tragedy. You see, it's the time of Herod and the Romans, and there's unjust, paranoid rulers who are control freaks, who oppress the people. And into this darkness comes an illegitimate child born to a teen mum in an animal food trough who's the subject of an assassination plot by Herod, who grows up and becomes a refugee in Egypt and then grows up in Nazareth, which is like the despised kind of shamshopo of, of Israel. He's kind of like in a band three school. And this authentic Christmas isn't Jesus rocking around the Christmas tree in his nicely decorated manger. It's about sheltering from cow poo and cold-blooded murder. The Christmas story is really more brutal than we realize. And yet, what it shows us is the high and lifted up one rolling up his sleeves and getting down into the dirt and the reality and the messiness of our lives. Of society. He's there in the mess. He's there in the brokenness. He's there in the gutter of life. And when we want to sanitize it with religious alcohol wipes, what he does is he comes to us and says, I'm removing all of that. If we want to know Jesus, if we want to know Jesus in this church, we've got to stop sanitizing our lives and trying to make them look nice and as if we are good by ourselves. God reaches down to outcasts by becoming an outcast himself. He reaches down to the despised by becoming despised. And it's right in the place where we want to hide it away in shame that actually Jesus comes to us today. That's where you'll find the Savior coming to you, coming to me, coming to us as a community right in those places of brokenness. God is totally upside down in the way he does things. That's the first point. Oh, my God. Second point. Oh, his grace. Do you know it's completely possible for you to come to God today and he's seeking to bring you freedom and hope and life and it's possible for you to completely miss him. Did you know that? Because he doesn't look like what we'd expect him to look like. And because he, he comes not to just booster your self-esteem, but he actually comes to wreck your self-image, which has been nicely crafted of yourself. Because we are masters at covering over our own sin and shame. We don't think we need him. But do you know what verses six to, uh, four to six are? They're actually the aftermath of a train wreck. They're the eye-opening confession That we don't get God. That God is way more gracious, way more merciful than we could possibly imagine. He says this. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own own way. Did you notice he he said all? He didn't say some of us. He didn't say, well, there are some which are a little bit worse than others. He said all. And in case we didn't get it, he also says everyone. That means no one is excluded from this. He says all without exception of us are straying sheep. You know, um, 
Hong Kong's not a great place for sheep, but um, in the UK, uh, I have seen um, a sheep get through a hole in a fence and, and wander onto uh, a main road, a busy main road, and then all the other sheep behind kind of go, oh, that looks like a good idea. And they're all going through and wandering onto the main road together, totally oblivious of the danger, totally oblivious of what awaits, and they all think it's great. You know, that's us. That's us. Even if I know that there is a temptation coming which could get me into trouble, I still go into it anyway. Anyone like me? You know that that song which goes prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the one I love. That is true of you, that is true of me, that is true of all of us. But what often happens is a car comes along and kind of narrowly misses us or clips us on the tail and we go, God, why did you allow that car to come? We go, don't you love me? It's just not fair. I can't believe I'm just out here on the road and that's what happens to me. And God's going, hey, guys, guys, you guys wandered off. I'm actually the offended party here, but I've been seeking to love you, and you rejected my love. That's what he's been going to God's people. That's what he says to us so often. And, you know, in our kind of very polarized culture, it's really interesting how every one of us feels like we're victims in different ways. Everyone else is offended by other people. You know, if your colleague is mean to you, you feel that gives you license to be mean back to them, right? Because they deserve it, okay? And, you know, we have this in culturally as well. We have, um, you know, some uh, like really important issues of, of things like Black Lives Matters and Me Too movement, things which are there, are, there are real issues in society. But often, all of these get, get hidden under just a sea of just blaming each other, of hatred, of angrily shaming others, of excluding anyone who doesn't agree exactly with what you say. Because we think that if I've been a victim, then it gives me a right to victimize other people. You know, we say hurt people hurt people. And it's true. Why is it true? Because someone's always got to pay for sin. Someone's always got to pay for sin. And we generally want to make other people pay. That's why we go, you owe me an apology. Or I'll make him pay. Or he's not getting away with that. That's what we say. But we're all bankrupt in our accounts. We're all bankrupt. And so that cycle of oppression and sin and guilt where we're just dumping guilt and shame on each other carries on. Sometimes we say, I'm, you know, maybe I am a, a, a sheep, uh, but I'm, I'm a light grey sheep. I'm not a black sheep like them over there. But we see everyone else's sin but our own. How in our divided world can we get free of all of the madness that there is? It's only if someone steps in from the outside, someone who is totally innocent, not tainted by sin and shame at all. Someone who sees our issues more clearly than we see them. Someone who has no debt to pay at all. Who owes no, no one anything. And that is Jesus. And here's what he says. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken by God and afflicted. But he was crushed. He, sorry, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. 
and with his stripes we are healed. You see the word grief, sorrow, stricken, they're all words for suffering, for sickness, or being struck down with a contagious disease like leprosy or COVID. Israel was in isolation, lonely, wounded, in exile, rejected because of their sin. And in their suffering, they saw themselves as a victim. But God stepped in and said, for everything that you have done, for everyone that everyone else has done to you, I'm going to pay for it. I'm going to absorb the cost. It's the man who steps in front of the convicted criminal facing the firing squad and takes the bullet for them. It's the language of the Day of Atonement, a yearly festival where the high priest would take two goats and he'd kill one of them as payment for the sins of the people, showing that our debt is so great that only death can remove it. And the other one was the scapegoat. And what he'd do, he'd lay his hands onto the goat's head and he would confess the sins of the people over it and then he'd let the goat go. And it will be released and wander into the wilderness, excluded from the rest of the people. So where all the weight of their shame and guilt was placed on that goat, it was gone and it walked away. And so they were free. They were free. They didn't have to bear it any longer. That's why he's saying payment has been made, not by you, not by anybody else, but by Jesus. Jesus on the cross became our sin bearer, our shame bearer, our guilt bearer. He's the only truly white sheep, the only truly innocent one. He had every right to be offended at the way we spat on him, at the way we blamed him for our problems, the way we looked at him and saw him as the one rejected rather than us. But the only one who had every right to condemn us was led like a lamb to the slaughter. Beaten without recognition. Nails hammered in by taunting soldiers. Blood and flesh stripped off his back. The blood flowing down from his whole body. We shouted, crucify him, crucify him. And he responded without any accusation. Without a word. Except forgiveness. Except grace. You see, he was cancelled so that we wouldn't have to be. He was rejected so we could be accepted. He was wounded so our wounds could be healed. You see, peace is now possible between us and God and us and each other because the weight of what we keep throwing on each other and taking on ourselves and the sin that we cannot bear by ourselves, he's paid it. He's paid it. It's incredible, isn't it? And as we looked at that, and every day this week we have done the same thing. We've been adding to the pile. We saw what Jesus has done for us and we went, isn't that totally unfair? You shouldn't have to take it. It's our bullet to take, not yours to take. No, we didn't. We didn't do that at all. Because like in all of our conflicts, we fail to see him. We're too preoccupied with our own grievances, with our own wounds, to notice his. We thought God operated on the same way that we do. But praise God he doesn't. Praise God he doesn't. Jesus has taken on the cross 
the weight of having to be right all the time, the weight of fearing the humiliation of being exposed that you're not all that you should be, the weight of the false shame that has been laid on your back, that you don't need to carry it any longer or put it on anybody else's back, that shame that comes to you and keeps telling you about your past, that shame that keeps coming to you with all your mistakes and keeps reminding you of all that you've done, that you're not good enough, all those things. Jesus says, because I have taken it, you can take that bag of rubbish and you put it onto him because he's already taken it for you. There's a place for you to put all of those things which actually barriers in all of our relationships with God and with everybody else. There's a place we can put it now. And it's on him. Isn't that amazing? That's freedom. You see, in in most of my pastoral ministry, I think the number one thing that actually stops us really enjoying our relationship with Jesus and really gets in the way of our own uh, relationships with, with each other is our inability to see all the rubbish that we're carrying. To see our sin, to see our shame, to see our guilt. We see everybody else's, but we don't see ours. And we don't see our need for Jesus. And it doesn't matter whether you've been a Christian one day, or you're not a Christian, or you've been a Christian for 30 years. Let me tell you, I think it's the same thing for us every day. You know, Indian civil rights activist Gandhi, he had a son called Manilal, who was actually a wild kid. And at one point, he had an affair with a married woman, and it brought shame on all the family. And and all the relatives wanted to punish him for it. But Gandhi did two things. He, He wrote a letter, and at the end, he signed it, Blessings from a Father in Agony. And then he started to fast for his son. And the son, Manilal, saw the pain and the sacrifice that his father was willing to go through. And it broke him. And he confessed, and as he confessed and admitted his wrong, towards actually even a father that he didn't have a close relationship with, there was beginnings of forgiveness and restoration and peace could be restored between them in the family. If that's what can happen when we see just on a human level, an, a, a level of love and a sacrifice, how much more when Jesus has done everything for us, when you see the love of a father? Because you see this passage, the author has finally seen it. He's finally come with confession. Why? He's finally gone, this was us. That includes me. Why does he do that? Because he's finally seen the depth of the love that Christ has done. And that's broken him to see, man, I'm way more in need of grace than I realized. You know, I try and make it my practice every day to spend a minute or two actually just thinking about the cross. It's something as Christians we can be so familiar with. But until you see his wounds, until you see him kneel at the foot of the cross again, you'll never see how serious your sin is, not just in the past, but even right now, this last week. You'll never see your own need for forgiveness. You'll never see how much it cost God to forgive you. And you'll never see the extent of his love for you right now. 
And you will not see that, and that will impact your relationships. You'll struggle to forgive others their sin and to absorb the cost that it is to forgive. And you may miss God coming to you today. So lay down right now the weight of all that holds you and find healing at the cross. Find healing there. That's all what grace. What a God, my God. Oh, what grace. Oh, his grace. Oh, what joy. It's the final thing. The passage goes on in verse 10, and it says, It was the will of the Lord to crush him. Do you know that word will actually means the delight, the joy of God to crush Jesus. And you think, is God just a sadistic kind of child abuser in this, killing his own son? And no, that's not what's going on here. Because Jesus is the Holy One of God, the high and lifted up one. Come to us. It was the joy of God for God himself to pay everything necessary, to lift our guilt and shame. But it doesn't end there. In Jesus, what was he wanting to do and to accomplish? He tells us, he shall see his offspring and he shall prolong his days. And by his knowledge shall many be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. Do you see what he's doing? He's saying Jesus died and rose again. His days will prolong, even though he's cut off, not just to create a few individuals who come and feel a bit of forgiveness for themselves, but to create a new family, offspring, a new community who experience in a real way that verdict which is better than just good boy or good girl. It's a verdict of declared righteous, declared in the right, accepted, loved, forgiven, healed by Christ. And you belong in a world which is filled with divisions, where forgiveness is so costly to us that we can never feel like we can really offer that to others because we have nothing in our tank to give. To people like you and me, who often just keep dumping stuff on other people, judging other people, all those other things, there is a place that we can come. There is a community of people who are in confession, forgiveness, and grace. Look to Jesus, and there is the resources through which we can then become the people who look like the righteous one, the servant Because when you are righteous, you are declared righteous with a verdict over us. But then that enables us to live righteously with one another. And it's the exiled, outcast people who then get to be included in the family. You know, I I spoke to somebody who said, um, I know Jesus accepts me. But I don't really want to open up. I don't really want to be real because I don't want to be rejected by others. You see, what Christ is doing and what Christmas is about, Christmas is about Easter. Do you know that? Christmas is the launch pad of what God was doing through Easter to create a people for himself. You know, the angels sang in the town of Bethlehem that good news of great joy, a savior has been born. There is peace on earth 
for us, it's come. An outcast shepherds who probably had a, had a well-earned reputation of being thieves came. And then pagan, non-Jewish, excluded from the community, uh, uh, wise men come. And they worship and bow down at the animal feeding trough in which this little, pooing, messy baby is held. They fall down and they worship him. You see, what's happening is the beginning of offspring. The beginning of people who never normally would come together can come together because of Christ. Because of his grace. And it's their grace, that grace... That then enables us, as we look to the cross, to extend that to others that we would normally exclude. You know, chapter 54 tells us, it starts off in the light of what Jesus has done. It says, sing, sing. And then it says, fear not. And those two go together because joy is often stolen by our fear. But actually the joy of the Lord, he says, fear not, for you will not be ashamed. In my people, this is not a place of shame. For your maker is your husband. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. So what that means is for those of us who are afraid of being honest and afraid of being real, come to Jesus this morning and come into a community where all of us need to begin to be honest. And we can only do that as we see that we have a husband, that we have a redeemer who welcomes and accepts us. Some of us have real wounds. We have real guilt, real shame, and stuff from other people that they've dumped on us over our years. And we feel weighed down by the pressure, by the expectations, by everything that we should be. We feel like it's not fair. There's criticism that's come to us. Maybe we've been angry at other people. And Jesus says, come. Don't try and make others pay for it. Don't try and pay for it yourself with self-condemnation. Lay it down at my feet. Fear not. Because here you'll find healing for your soul. And you can keep putting that on me. Because every day you're going to get different things happen. Every day is going to come different accusations. There's going to be different relational tensions, different times where we're tempted to just take all that on ourselves, put it on other people, judge other people, exclude other people. And as a community, we've got to keep coming back to see it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. See, this, if this is the kind of community that we're all doing, then that's the kind of community that's open for people who are wounded and broken to come into it's open for those who are outcast in our society to feel accepted and welcomed for us to open people we even disagree with because when we come we come not as people who've got a whole load of baggage to throw on others but as people who are free we're going to come to communion And do you know what communion is? Communion is a meal for sheep. Communion is a meal for shamed, guilty, born weighed down by life, weighed down by our own struggles, our own sin, our own shame, and everything else. 
It's a place to come and to see Jesus again. I want you to gaze on Jesus. Imagine yourself at the foot of the cross and see yourself before him and see him taking everything for you. And I want you, as you see that, to open your hands and say, God, let it break you. Let it open you up. Let it open places of your wounds. Bring your wounds to him. Bring your guilt to him. Don't come away without a sense that you actually need Jesus. So what we're going to do is, in a minute, I'm just going to give you a moment to reflect. And then I'm going to uh, come back and we'll take uh, some of the elements together. So if you don't have your community elements, feel free to just grab them right now. But come before him and see what he's done for you. Let's just spend a minute in confession. Let his love for you break you. And let it remold you and heal you. So let's just pray. I want you to think, how have you been looking at Jesus? Have you seen him? Have you seen him in the midst of all the COVID struggles and all the other things that have been wrapping you up? Have you seen him amidst the arguments you've been having or the, the, the sense of downcastness or weariness or tiredness? Have you seen him? Have you seen him? Have you seen his love for you? Have you seen his grace poured out upon you? Have you seen him? You see, on, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a meal. You see, a meal is a place of acceptance and welcome. It was a place where broken people can feel safe to be themselves, to feel safe. Not because of anything we've done, but because of Jesus. And at that meal, he took a loaf of bread and he went and broke it. And he said, this bread is my body, which you are going to despise at this moment. You're not going to get what I'm doing for you. You're going to reject me, but I'm not going to throw it back in your face. I'm going to absorb it all for you. I'm going to absorb it all for you, that you might know the joy of forgiveness and freedom, and that we might, you might be a community that is filled with this joy and freedom. The body of Christ. And then he took a cup. 
and he took a cup because it symbolized blood like the blood of goats like the blood of bulls like the blood of lambs it symbolized this is going to cost me everything and he took it and out of incredible joy and anguish he said this is my blood which is shed for you so that you may be forgiven, but also so that you may be someone who out of the forgiveness and love you receive can forgive others and show grace to others because this is what I'm doing, the blood of Christ. Father, let's just pray. Father, Forgive us where we actually think we know the cross well. Forgive us where we just kind of glance at it as as good Christians occasionally, because that's what Christians do, but we fail to see the magnitude. Lord, we hold on to resentment and grudges towards other people. We carry the guilt and shame on ourselves, and we say, "I I can deal with it, I can handle it, but Father, we can't. And we cause devastation around us, but you came to bring us peace. You came to bring us healing. You came to bring a great news of great joy, Lord. I pray that today we would experience that great news of great joy afresh. That today there is a savior for us who is born. There's this community of Watermark. We are a community which are saved. We're a community which don't have to prove ourselves anymore. We're a community which even when we wrestle, even when we struggle, we can come back again and again to the foot of the cross and we can know that even though we're complete mess. You're the one who takes messes and you restore us. You're the one who takes broken outcast people and you make us a family. And I pray that this Christmas, that would not be a theoretical abstract concept in our minds, but I pray that you'd help that to become deeper, more real, more rich, more full, and let us extend that to the people around us. Let us know the depth of your love for us, I pray. Break us, heal us, Let us know the joy of your salvation. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.